This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. How many of you in here are familiar with the most recent skirmish that's going on in the blogosphere? It's uh, Maybe you're thinking of it, it, it. It's one that many people are talking about. People have some pretty weighty statements they've made against other ministries and some of these ministries are long-standing and large-scale, and they've, they, they've involved quite a bit of pushback, all right, and ideas. But some of them have started to even get a little personal so that the critics seem intent on tearing down decades of ministry. Are you tracking with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? Most of you probably could think of like three different things that fit that description because <laughs> I wasn't thinking of a specific thing when I write that, but right now I think there's a debate going on about the relationship between works and faith and the relationship between black and white Christians. And there's debates about, you name it, there are, uh, there are many things on the blogosphere right now that could fit into this debate that quickly turns personal and evaluates the, the validity of someone else's ministry and, and uh, begins to shed questions or, or, or cast questions over what some what pastor is succeeding and which one is failing as which ministry rises and which ministry falls and i think it raises a question basically every week for you as you prepare for ministry how should you measure successful ministry every time you read an evaluation in a blog post you're asking that question under the surface is this person's evaluation of ministry fair and faithful or is this person's ministry faithful so how will you set a course or continue a course? There's men in here who are in the midst of their ministries. Many of you are as you train. How will you continue a course for successful ministry? And my goal today is just to encourage you as you prepare for ministry to evaluate your role and your goal right, in ministry properly by God's standards and his timeline, not by man's. So that's why we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, simple few verses together that I hope we can look at, seem to be easy to grasp, and then apply. Um, if, if I were to give you the kind of big idea, I know we have homiletics professors in here and things like that, so I have to actually have those things in my sermon today, all right? You, here it is, you, you're called to minister as a servant who is measured by faithfulness and focused by hope. You're called to minister as a servant who's measured by faithfulness and focused by hope. And the reason I think that's grounded in this text is there's a little bit of an argument that unfolds, so I'll preview it for you. First thing Paul says is you should be regarding ministers, he's speaking of apostles here first, but I think there's application, as servants. Okay. Second, he sets the standard of a servant as faithfulness. Or trustworthiness. And then third in the passage, he shows that faithfulness is not determined by human courts or human opinion. And fourth, that only God will rightly determine faithfulness how and when he chooses. Okay? So we'll see that in the passage. But remember this. You're called to minister as a servant. So what you're preparing to do in your ministry is be a servant. <laughs> and you're going to measure success in being a servant by faithfulness. I hope, and you're going to be energized in that task 
by hope. All right, And I'll unfold why I'm saying it that way. So if you remember the Corinthian church, most of you probably have some familiarity with Christ, uh, the Corinthian church. It's a place marked by some serious problems. Even though Paul starts with his thankfulness for how God's worked in them, there's division, there's pride, there's tolerance for sin, and a seeming impatience with apostles. It's a, a very uh, odd place, like most churches, right? This is a, um, a group that's forming fan clubs around teachers and allegiances and, and seems to have an appetite for human wisdom, but not an appetite for a crucified Messiah. And Paul has been in correcting them, instructing them in righteousness, right? And so showing that, that the logic that humans follow is not necessarily the logic of the gospel, that the path to power in a human scale is not necessarily the path to power in the kingdom of the crucified Messiah. And that the Corinthians need to stop judging things by temporal, superficial scales. Right? That's, that's been happening in the early chapters. He's telling them that. You know some of the famous verses about the, the wisdom of God is wiser than men and that he's used not many mighty, but these, these weak to shame the wise. Right? He wants them to know that they, they basically they've, they've received a foundation from Paul and it's, he, his crucial role in their life was laying the foundation of Christ. And then they need to take the same uh, approach, not to build around leaders, but to build on, on Christ in a faithful, enduring way in chapter 3. A, day, a way that, if you look at chapter 3, will be revealed at the day. The day will bring it to light, verse 13. If they build their house on the rock, they will be saved, right? Just like Jesus taught us. So if you, if you build your house on the right foundation, you will be saved. But the refining fire won't necessarily leave much of what you built if it's been for the wrong motivation. So Jesus' words, anyone who hears these words of mine and, and puts them into practice, has built his life on a rock, is still true. But you're hopefully looking for the labor that you have given in this life to the Lord to endure, to produce reward. So how is that going to look? All right, so Paul concludes those statements, he's, and it's going to lead into our passage. Verse 18, if you read with me, verse 318. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is, in, in, is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word, the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you're of Christ and Christ is of God. And so with this, Paul begins a new section that, that, that springs from there in chapter four that but the connections are unavoidable. So let me read the passage for you. I'm used to in our church. The scripture reading before I preach is actually the passage I'm going to preach from. So I got to remember to read it to you all. Let's read First uh, Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those who have been tr- entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at, the t- at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Uh, there, there are layers at which we could dive into this passage, but I think that the, the, the kernel of its, its weight is very clear and, and applicable for the way you are training right now. So let's unfold how you measure successful ministry. And the first, th- first place Paul wants to take us is this. You should regard ministers as servants. So if you're going to set your evaluation scale, you can't be evaluating them by other standards. This then, verse 1, right, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. I'm not sure if that's the last time I preached in here, but I think it, it was that passage, Mark chapter 10, that the greatest among you will be servant of all. Paul regards his role, even his authoritative, elevated, humanly speaking, role as an apostle as one that is for the Corinthians. It's for others. Jesus was a servant of all and gave himself as a ransom for many. The way Jesus accomplished his task was by putting the will of the Father ahead of his own and the best interests of others ahead of himself. And that is the way forward in your own ministry, in every ministry, which is incredible. It's not just the way that Jesus got to his specific ministry in the cross and accomplished his unique role. He has a unique role. But there's a pattern that Jesus has left for us that Paul is picking up. And it's this path of humility as a servant. It's not um, apostleship or pastoral ministry. Any kind of ministry is not... uh, like a CEO, right? There's all kinds of counterfeits that are brought to the light, right? That a CEO or a general or a priest, I mean, that's probably not one that you and I often uh, think of, right? But there are many people who think of, think of the spiritual leader as this go-between, as a special intercessor, right? In, in my community and in, in all of your communities, if, unless you live on a different planet, there's no Catholics, right? I mean, this, this, this is not your role. Uh, you, you may have aspects in your life where you serve by providing clear organization or clear direction, clear instruction, right? But do you see the, the difference between some of those things and perhaps what comes to mind when I say someone is in the, the, you know, the corner office, <laughs> the, big, the big chair at the end of the table where they are in charge they, we, we have people who have been given real authority in the church. The, the pastor is given real charge and authority over God's people. But his, his aim is to build them up to not as Gentiles do lord authority over, but to serve. And Paul's echoing that here. He, he's been saying this because it, it, if you think of people as servants, it's going to be very hard to rally around servants, right? You remember what Corinthians are doing. They're, they're, they're creating fan clubs for the busboy or the dishwasher. <laughs> they're creating fan clubs for the, the lawn keeper, right? I mean, that's crazy, right? This, this is who, who is really in, you know, waving a flag for the gardener or the, you know, the, the, the guy that, that plows the snow, 
But that's what Paul wants them to realize is you're workers in God's household, God's field, that really the, the glory should be flowing upstream past you very quickly. So you regard yourself, and that's going to set your whole evaluation for ministry, is if you think of yourself as something else. And so let me pull one out that is a little bit sneakier. Um, I don't like this idea, but it comes up so much because technically I'm a church planter, right? Whatever that makes me. I mean, I'm trying to, to see a church planted with the help of others, but um, people talk about having vision, okay? And I hate this, so I'll just tell you it's going to sound awful, but vision is a goofy thing, okay? Because it makes it sound like you've got something, right? That like I've got vision for where Resurrection Church needs to go or whatever. And if somebody means by vision that I what I see in God's Word, here's how I see it applying in our context, well, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, that, that, we can call that vision. If it, I see something in God's Word and I see it applying here in this specific way. But if it's this kind of thing where people are rallying around my vision... Like they couldn't see it in God's word and see it apply in this context. I think you're going to be in trouble. I don't, that doesn't sound like a servant. That sounds like, you know, a cult. Okay. So let's not plant cults. Let's plant churches and let's embrace the fact that, yeah, we need careful thought and planning about how God's word applies in a specific context. I'm very, very pro that. But I think that the word vision is maybe a word you should annex from your life. Because if you refer to yourself as having vision, then you may be a little blind, okay? Because that, that is the, the reality of, of self. It, it sounds nice. I'd love to say I have vision. It makes people say, here's the vision I see. I'd love to act like I know what's going on, guys. <laughs> you know, I would love to let, I mean, I got church members in here. I would love to make everybody think that I just got this strategic plan. But if you've been around me for more than a couple of days, then you know that that vision is rather hollow, okay? I'm just trying to pray and read God's word and hopefully apply it as long as I ask the guys at the seminary if it's okay, right? If, if I'm doing the right thing. That, that's what this needs to look like. And really the word, it's not used in the New Testament this way, but the, the word servant is, is informed by even there's a common usage of an under rower. Think about the dudes underneath the ship, okay, who just have an oar. And they're in the bottom of the ship and they are just rowing, right? That is your role. That is what you are aspiring to is you just grab your oar and you row, okay? I know that sounds really exciting, okay? Especially if you've thought at all about what those ships were like. This is not necessarily something that people aspire to the way that the world aspires. And that's okay. I'm trying to undercut the legs of that a little bit because if you set out for that end, you will evaluate success wrongly. So if you're a servant, here's how's a, me a servant measured. Look at the passage. Regard us as servants of Christ. I hope it was making clear that it, you're serving Christ as those entrusted with the mysteries of God, God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So here's the dynamic. Paul says, you are a servant. You've been given a task and a charge. You've been given a, a deposit. And now the responsibility is that you manage well. Okay, faithful, I think, probably here leans toward the side of trustworthy rather than like you're a very prayerful servant. It means responsible. It's it, certainly you can't really be responsible to Christ without a prayerful life, right? But the but the the fact is that he wants them to think, I have a charge from someone else that I walk out. 
I have a deposit given to me that I steward. Uh, steward is a common translation of these words, but it kind of comes to mind of like a flight attendant for people. So I think the NIV uses a servant to help capture some of what this is. As an, uh, maybe an overseer of an area of responsibilities, the way a gardener you hire decides where the hydrangeas go. I was just trying to think of flowers. Hydrangeas and the chrysanthemums go, and if they go together and when they grow. But that's not, I mean, that's not running or owning the house, right? That's just you, you figure out where your patch of dirt needs to move, and you keep plugging along, right? So some, some people might give you attention a and say, or give pushback, and they say, well, won't being a servant, if your goal is to be a servant, make you a directionless puppet, kind of at the whim of popular opinion? And that's when you have to say that you're a servant of Christ who serves people serves Christ by serving people. You actually are submitted to, like Christ, the will of the Father and the best interests of others. How, how do I know the best interest? Because I'm first submitted to the will of the Father. I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then that informs me on how I can love my neighbor as myself. So I, I'm, I'm taking what's been entrusted with the mysteries of God as revealed. I think there he has in view specifically the gospel and, and the entrusting of the message and work of Jesus Christ, God's unfolding plan through the person and work of Jesus Christ, as what's been given to you to now be faithful with. And so what you must do is take the good news of Jesus, what he has accomplished, who he is and what he's done, and, and execute it faithfully in a time and place with the relationships and, and area of responsibilities God has given you. The, the past chapter before... You are a worker in God's field. Okay, I think this is fairly apparent for you. So let me let me use just some contrasts. All right, servants are not masters or owners. You you are different than that. But I'm going to borrow two other scriptural images to contrast in a way that might help apply it. Ambassadors are not kings. Paul uses the ambassador, right? An ambassador is not a king. An ambassador shows up with the king's message on the king's mission doing things in along the king's methods, right? And trying to reflect the character of the king. So so let me just apply that to you. If you want to talk about being a servant who's faithful, entrusted with what God, the mysteries of God, so God's word specifically revolving around the center of who Jesus is and what he's done, then then think about the ambassador image. You're going to take God's message, accomplish the mission God gave, God's mission using God's methods while reflecting God's character. That's how you be a servant who's trustworthy because you're an ambassador. You don't represent your own interests. You don't work for your own goals to use 2 Corinthians 5, right? Still both letters to the Corinthians. But, but the ambassador image is, I think, a helpful image to inform the servant image. Another image that Jesus uses is a shepherd, not a hireling. He talks about himself, and I think as the chief shepherd, we can think about under shepherds this naturally applying. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. And the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And I, I think if, if I can just borrow the image, okay? I don't think Jesus is necessarily giving a lesson on, on pastoral ministry, but I think there's a, there's, there's a vivid image there. There's a lot of guys who do this 
because it makes a fine life for them. And some of that, I think, can be evidenced when life gets less than fine. And they, they all of a sudden don't like their church anymore. And they don't like the sinners that they once liked because the sinners that once liked them no longer like them, right? <laughs> that they, they have all of a sudden seen the, the tribulation coming, and instead of slugging it out, okay, and I can say this because I'm young and haven't gone through it, so it's easy to be like very clear-eyed about it, right? But the reality is there, there, there are people who they, they show their motive. They show the, the underbelly of, of what they're really in it for when they abandon the sheep for personal interest. And I think that's an, an, an information about what their expectations were. Were they expecting to be a servant who gets bossed around and trampled on and lifts up the interests of others? Or were they kind of thinking this is going to go well? The sheep will generally go where I expect and I'll get my pay. And, and then when you find out that the pay's not coming and there's a wolf on the, at the, the crest of the hill there, let's, let's go find, you know, let's be a baker or a candlestick maker, right? I mean, let's do something else. That is a, a challenge I would put to inform you. Ambassadors represent God's interests, God's met for God's mission, in God's ways, God's methods, reflecting God's character. Shepherds, they stay in for the interest of the sheep. Under shepherds, stay in for the interest of the chief shepherd and the sheep. If Jesus was willing to die for these sheep, you'd think it would reflect some of his interest that you would hang in when you know things get a little tough. Right, that's I think where we can inform ourselves. So third, right, first thing you should regard yourself as servants. Second, the standard for servants is trustworthiness or faithfulness. It's not not any other uh, success, but this is where it starts to apply. Third, faithfulness, okay, trustworthiness is not determined by human courts. Look at verse three. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. And frankly, yesterday morning. Uh, I was reflecting on, okay, what am I supposed to speak on with you all? Because I always try to reflect on where I was in seminary and where I am now and what, what, what do I still need now that I needed then. Maybe I could help you guys not need it in the future. The, the truth is that, that there are so many competing voices for how you will evaluate yourself. And Paul gives an evidence of the fact that he, he is... He's walking a very fine middle line, which we'll talk about, where, where the, the popularity contest is not phasing him. And not just the popularity contest, the voice of any human. He's demonstrating, if we talk about it in wisdom literature terms, fear of the Lord, right? That God is the loudest voice in every conversation and the largest person in every room. So the other people and their voices are heard in context of the large voice. And the other people and their opinions are weighed in context of the, the big boss, right? This is what Paul seems to have. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. So he could say, you know, congregation size is, uh, you know, that's a place where it's amazing to me how many people ask right away. We're very new at this, and but you know what? Maybe in 10 years we still will only have 30-some members. But people, that's a very... Genuine, I think, not an ill motive question, but there, there's often the evaluation quickly based on numbers, right? Success, generally, 
is indicated by growth in numerical growth, right? I think I think we understand that. What about invitations to speak? Maybe maybe respect of others within your you know your your class of vocation. So if you get asked to speak on a topic, that means people respect your wisdom or your work on something or your experience and. And so there's professors and there's students all in here who have different stages of this, who are thinking this work I've done is getting none or too little of the rec- re- uh, appropriate response. Same thing you might be thinking as a student in your local church. The pastor doesn't seem to be noticing how hard I've been working to disciple this person or investing myself in the children's ministry or whatever it is, right? I mean, the professors are going through that. I'm going through that. It's part of human human nature. So just because they're actually doing good work, and most of us aren't yet, doesn't mean that you won't battle the struggle, right? This is a – that was a joke, guys. It, it is a, a part of fallenness that you're going to face, all right? What about maybe budgets and maybe the flexibility of, you know, a bivocational pastor or a person who hasn't received a job in ministry yet, Okay or just the, the tightness of the ministry that you are currently in, not being able to make ends meet, or, um, or social approval, right? Because the, the church I pastor is not big and not wealthy and not a lot of things. But you know what? People come alongside and they say, you're really doing it. You know, you're really doing it. You're in a tough place and whatever. And I often think, well, it's not as tough as you might think, but you, you know, you're really doing it. That's what they say. And so am I going to live for that? Like, so if I can't get budgets and if I can't get crowds, am I going to be like, well, hey, people know that I'm slugging it in a tough place and still backdoor the human approval. Am I going to measure myself by these things? Okay, and, and so some of you might hear this as an encouragement towards boldness. Okay, and it, I think it is, all right? It's an encouragement towards boldness. Paul seems bold here with the Corinthians. Uh, if you're the man who sees the best interests of others and the glory of God sitting out in front of you. But it's going to be risky with uh, personal interests or maybe with a predecessor or something like that. It may involve hard conversations or people judging you, your motives. Then you need to stop being selfish and you need to move. If the best interest, glory of God and the best interests of others is clear and in front of you, but it's going to cost you something personally, then you need to man up and go for it, right? That is the truth. That's servant-mindedness. That's boldness. Paul says, I don't care if the the verdict is going to be poor. If I can see that this is truly God's desire and and the good of others, which is God's desire, right? This is, let's go for it, right? But this is a group, okay, outside of the professors and a couple students that are uh, relatively young, right? That that it, So probably boldness isn't where I need to say, you know, let's be bold. The more likely human court that you will cower to is not the court of your predecessors, but of your peers, right? The rising tide of opinions amongst the men your age or people of your appetite. That, that there are people from your background or people you respect and aspire to be like. Their w- opinion may weigh heavy on you, more heavy than the pastor that you're working with or more heavy than these things. Some of you may need to say, listen, you need to have some tough conversations about your desires with someone that you're working under, right? Others of you, though, I'm, and I'm guessing that the bent in seminary, at least maybe I'm speaking from my own bent, is that, that you guys are, you have ambition 
to see things go forward and you want to charge new places with the gospel. And so you may need to be informed to, to listen to listen less to the popular opinion of those around you. And what I mean by that is at the same plane and authority and experience and, and these things. So maybe I can even give a simple illustration. This is not to step on toes. This is just intentionally I thought of one that would be very obvious. Men in here, you should not abandon, okay, or, or, or disregard or even give a less than a fair shake to a dispensational interpretation of the Scripture because it's not prominent or common in the conferences and the evangelical blogosphere that you regard highly. That's just, that's the kind of cowardice that Paul would not say meshes with this passage. You realize that? The inclination to regard some interpretations because of the face. Oh, the gardener really likes this passage and interpretation. But the butcher and the candlestick maker, I don't know, I don't know if I want to be those, so I'm going to listen to the gardener. That's ridiculous, Okay. But on the other side, men, you should not embrace a dispensational passage. None of of the men here would want you to embrace it purely because that's the circle you're in and with the pressure of professors and the network of churches that you'll be looking for a job. Okay, Dispensational churches hire dispensational pastors. And so the self-interest of that end is also cowardly. All right, and I think you you should study the Scripture Regard highly the providential wisdom of God to put influences in your life. Tip your hat to the fact that people are older and wiser and study the scripture. But search your heart for either inclination. Because those are, those are just, a, that's a really small setting where it could be something else. All the deacons in your church one day want something. All the pressure in, you know, from the, some other group wants something else. And you will, to import James 2, become a judge with evil motives. You basically have pre- played favorites because of things you hope to gain, or whether it's a, a more tranquil church or something like that, right? This, this is not the motive. It's a servant to the king who ends up serving others, right? So quickly, let me just say one quick word about this, and we're moving towards the end. I, God forbid it, but I, I, I guess the statistics would play out that there, this is an, a discouraging reality. But th- there, uh, there will be people in here, You, some, some of us, could be me, who will fail in ministry. Whatever that means, whether a church plant fails or a church closes its door or uh, an opportunity doesn't materialize the way you hoped or, you know, in some ways, the, the, I think the more true sense of failure, a sin ends a marriage or, you know. But there are also things like sin, you simply can't find a job in ministry, okay? And, and you know what? There's going to be a day where you're not going to want to show up to the alumni thing because that's true of you. And that is a shame to me, not a casting light on the suffering that, that other people have been through. But you won't be a failure, okay, even if necessarily if, those, if, if some of those things are true of you. Right, specifically, like if the church plant fails, I had to really wrestle with this. Okay, I don't know what fails means yet, but like let's just say it dies. I, that's no that's no eternal verdict on my ministry. It's not. There's just there's it. Ha, the, the passage is telling us right there. Sure, it's going to cause some real reflection. What did I do? What could I have done differently? Where did I mess up? Because I don't want to be like, well, you know what? God probably planned for me to be a failure. But 
The reality is our human inclinations can wait in these things. They, they can throw weight on these things. And so you can then be, you start to think, well, this has got to work. And you start to live by different opinions that will make it work. Or you will start to live by certain measures that will make it work. If numbers will make it work, then you'll do what is necessary to get numbers. Okay? I mean, think of that as an illustration. If our church plant can't eventually pay me, and I've got a family and a situation I need to actually get an income and I can't find the right fit, well, then I could feel pressure. Like, if, I, if I've concluded this can't fail, because that's a verdict on me. It can't fail. So how am I going to get it to not fail? Well, let's change some methods or change some practices, right? How am I going to do this? Or we could just say, well, I hope it doesn't fail, right? But the can't fail is not a verdict on me. It's also not an approval if it succeeds, right? I think this is at the heart of that passage. Come and show up. If, if, if there's something hard like that in your ministry future, look people in the eye confident in what Christ has done for you. All right, and the verdict of your failure is no more significant than the verdict of the Pope's success. All right, the Pope's got a, a really big church, and he is not doing that well. I promise you, <laughs> this is the nature of it. All right, so indeed, Paul doesn't say just human courts, but look, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. All right, so this is where I think this this is the. You know, I can encourage you, and most of us in a, a conservative, fundamentalist background, kind of, it's right in the wheelhouse. It's, a, it's, a, it's an easy pitch to tell you not to measure yourself by human success. You know, don't set yourself up to be Joel Olstein or whatever, right? But, um, you know, we can throw stones at the mega church pastor, the men who seem to be sellouts and manipulators, and a lot of the stones are, are well-aimed, all right? I, I'm not... But the, the large church, it seems, you know, they get a large church, they murky, muddy the gospel, and we can be self-insured and assured that we are not like that huckster who is peddling the gospel, right? But would you be satisfied at the end of your life if you stood before God and found out that the only difference between your ministry and theirs was that they worked harder, got up earlier, thought more diligently about how they led and communicated? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, like, if, 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 the, if, if God reveals the heart, which this passage says, and the real difference was that you were self-motivated, you just weren't as diligent and creative and thoughtful. Because some of these guys, you listen to their leadership podcasts, they're brilliant, they're thoughtful, they're careful about the way they lead, and you're selfish, but hiding behind the protection of thinking, well, God never intended it to be huge. Those guys are huge because of wrong reasons, but you're a selfish, not a servant, right? That's, I, I just want to pause and say, I think that even Paul, he says, I, I'm not the final verdict of myself. I could be self-assured, but I'm not the final verdict. And I think he, when we could go dive into what the conscience is, how it's, you know, this, this moral evaluation seat in our, in our personhood that God has given us that can be correct, but always has to be informed by scripture or else it's not sure to be correct. And I think that's something of what Paul would be touching on is the fact that, you know, he wouldn't be saying a conscience that is perfectly overlaid with the, the scripture is clear and he would not be innocent. If he had a conscience that laid right over scripture and he was innocent, he'd be innocent, right? <laughs> but the reality is if he's just talking about human courts, whether it's the public one or the private one, 
don't put all too much final stock in them. Put them in God and His Word, right? He's the one. And that's where we can, I think, move forward. Instead of telling ourselves, you know, after a lifetime of smug self-assurance that the narrow way is the way that God has planned, that's why my church is small, and, and that's why that guy is dangerous, and the world will always heap themselves teachers with tickling, tickling their ears. And the true deference was actually... Uh, you know, not just the earthly success, you were actually very similar in heart motivation, that's going to, that's going to get burned up. And that's a, that's a wise thing for us to reflect on is not just because your church is small, then can you be assured that you're doing it right? Not just because your church is big, can you be assured that you're doing it right? Right? There, there are two sides of that same message. So fourth, only God will rightly determine faithfulness. It says, it is the Lord who judges me. This sounds like Romans 15, right? I mean, there's one judge, only one, right? Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. We, I, there's a lot of explaining that I would probably have to do in a, in a pastoral setting. You guys understand that this doesn't mean, you know, you can't practice discernment. You can't call false belief, false belief. You've, you've read enough of the New Testament to know that this is not saying like, well, we have no idea if Rob Bell's a solid guy. You know, we have no idea what God will think of certain things. But I think that the posture is one of temperance and patience, knowing that you are only judging from a, a finite vantage point based on God's word that's been revealed to you. You can't see the heart. You can see clearly with what you've been given. But, you know, some of God's words to Job, where he doesn't really explain how everything actually logically fits together, he just basically says the world is way bigger than you're capable of running. I'm running it. That's a little bit of the heart here. You don't have all the facts. And everybody knows, if you've been on the Internet for more than a day, that, man, facts can change quickly when you get the other facts, right? Proverbs tells us, that, that everyone sounds right until the other side of the story is heard. So let's withhold. Let's take our seat below the ultimate judge. Wait for the ultimate time. So uh, there, there are some a little practical points as we close. Because this could lead you to despair. I don't want you to despair, to think, well, like I have no idea if I'll be successful in ministry. In fact, when I die in the final judgment, um, then I'll find out if this whole life was worth something. <laughs> that, I don't think, is the passage's point. Okay, I, I think that 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 there is a path forward. And so let me get let me let me give you a path forward for ministry. First, embrace the good news. Okay, embrace what Jesus Christ has done. You were never going to serve your way into the kingdom anyway. You were never going to pastor your way to regeneration or to life eternal or, you know, you were never going to you're never going to do these things. If you're not a pastor or a missionary or a church planter or a successful version of those. You are still a Christian, and that is far better than being successful in any one of those without being a Christian. You realize that? that there's a little bit of, there's a, not a little bit, there's a ton of freedom in that Jesus has donated righteousness, and that he has covered your sinfulness, and that you can whiff at all of these things and still be clothed with sonship, right? That you are a son when you were an enemy, that you are righteous when you were evil. You are forgiven instead of guilty. You have this position that is secure in Christ. 
So any of this discussion about evaluating yourself has to have the confidence of that the, the, the language of chapter 3, that the foundation is still there. They'll be saved, though, as by fire. That, that these evaluations are not the same as the evaluation of in Christ or out of Christ, outside Christ, right? So embrace the gospel. You need to preach the good news to you, yourself, that um, my righteousness is found not in successful church planting, but in Jesus Christ alone, right? My, my, my status as God's son is not found in, in wise pastoral counseling or nuanced theological papers, but in the righteousness of the, the one who gave himself up for me. I have donated riches because he became poor on my behalf, right? And then give praise to God, okay? So if with others, when you evaluate ministry and when you evaluate your own ministry, somebody says, that was an awesome sermon, praise God. Direct the praise to God. Because whatever good was from it, you can be confident he did that. Even if your heart motive was bad and and the final day exposed that you were just a sham on that, but God did something. So, hey, praise God, he did something, right? You don't have to worry about the verdict first. And for other people, you can say, praise God. These people got saved at Joelson's church. I have no idea how. Praise God. Right? Cool. You don't have to tell them, well, the megachurch kind of rots, even though there are people getting saved. You just praise God for that. You don't have to praise those people. And just freedom from that. But then I'd say this. Embrace the, the, the means of grace. Prayer. The word prayer and God's people. So I'll explain that. Word, if you diligently look into the word of truth, God has intended to be understood, right? So it's not as though this passage, if I just left you here, you could feel like, throw it up to the wind. Who knows if you'll be successful? No, God has clearly given you his desired will for what your ministry should be like, his message, his mission, his methods, his character, right? He has intended to set that path. So you've got to dive into this, right? You've got to dive into it, set your course that way. Then you've got to, in prayer, right? Evaluate yourself, pray for the right ends, ask the Holy Spirit to refine your heart. I don't think a believer should be thinking, I, I have no expectation that my ministry will endure the final judgment if they have diligently studied the word, examined themselves in prayer, entrusted them to the power th- themselves to the Spirit. You can serve in freedom and go, well, I'm going to be accepted by God. And I'm, I'm pretty confident he'll use these as what he wills, but I also know I'm sin, more sinful than I understand. I don't, think, I don't want despair here. I just want you to feel the freedom of, I attended myself to God's word, I've humbled myself in prayer, and now I'll let the chips fall where they may, so to speak, all right? Um, God's people, this isn't counterintuitive, though. Look for insight, but don't overweigh it. You should listen. If somebody writes a blog post that you respect who, who is criticizing your approach, you should read it and think about it and pray about it, right? I think Paul would just be saying, listen, the human courts don't justify me. Or they don't, they don't condemn me and they don't justify me. So listen to the wisdom God has available through God's people, right? And then one last thing is measure your words. So your words reveal your heart. So the way you speak about your own ministry and your own success, about others and their own success, it, Jesus thinks your heart and mouth are so connected that you could be condemned or saved by your words, right? So, because they directly reflect and reveal your heart. So, so measure them. All right. Spurgeon tells a compelling story as we close that a preacher in London, he 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 compelled 
all of London for Christ, right? There are people getting saved left and right, men, women, and children from the worst parts and the best parts of the town coming to themselves, coming to a recognition of their sin and turning to Christ and growing in maturity. I mean, he was praised by men, and this guy seemed to be faithful. He seemed to be faithful. He loved God's Word, and he really genuinely offered himself to God, and there was no, like, deep, dark secret that we're supposed to see revealed. Just God was working, and people praised him, right? But in the final day, this man came to find out that, yes, God had great commendation for the work he'd done through him, but all of the thousands that had come were in response to the prayer of a beggar who sat on the stoop of the church during Sunday service, too filthy and smelly to even enter, who prayed that God's will would be done through the preaching of the word and and interceded on behalf of this church and this pastor and that this man was the one who was humanly responsible for the fruit. And and I use that to say just that, that I think that exem, exemplifies the passage. Don't, don't load this life's evaluations with more weight than they can bear. The big idea is for you that you need to measure your life as a servant, right? Who, who measures, you, you are a servant who measures yourself by faithfulness and you're fueled by hope. The reason I said hope is because you're awaiting. You're confidently expecting a future day that will reveal the weight. So whether you're struggling, that gives you energy, or whether you're succeeding, that gives you humility. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these guys' patience to listen to your word. Pray that it would bear fruit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.